And as you're seated and find your way to the Gospel of John, we will be in John chapter 16. We'll begin reading in verse 4, down to verse 11. Now, Lord, open Your Word to us. Open our hearts, open our ears, move us, that we might be drawn to Christ. Amen. Verse 4, Jesus says, But I've said these things to you, and He means all these things He's been talking about uh, regarding the hostility of the world against them. I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to Him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So ends the reading from the Scriptures. One of the blessings of the Christian life is found in knowing that because of God's sovereignty, even those things that feel like loss at the first will in the end turn out to our gain. And that's true of all earthly calamities. Loss of a job, the failure of a relationship, prolonged illness, Terrible things happen in a broken world and we can't avoid them. In fact, faith does not shield us from them. But in faith, we find that God's hand works even these things for our ultimate good as we trust in Him. Now that's the assurance the disciples needed to hear as Jesus begins to warn them again that not only is He leaving them, but the world itself is about to turn its hostility against them. And remember, he, he wants them to know that. He wants them to understand that difficult times are ahead. So that when they do come, the disciples won't fall away. That was chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. He says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known me nor the Father. But I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, and I remind you, the world gets its hour, but it's only an hour. When it comes, you'll remember I told these things to you. And so the goal of this passage is to remind the disciples and us that when times of difficulty, uh, times of persecution and sorrow come upon the church, these are not signs of God's neglect, nor of Satan's victory, surely, but these are reminders of us of why we need Him and how we must press all the closer to Him. Rest upon His promises 
and rest upon the help that He tells us we will have that will enable us to stand firm. Let's begin there this morning. With this reminder that when pain and sorrow fill our hearts, we must listen again to the promises of Christ. Again at verse 4, halfway through, He says, I I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Sorrow has filled their hearts. They're sad. They're upset. Why? Well, just imagine that you were there with them and this man whom you've come to rely on for everything has just told you that he's going away, that he's, that he's leaving you. And not only that, but he's, he's leaving you in a very desperate situation where people will hate you and despise you and even seek to kill you. Now that wouldn't lead to a whole lot of cheerful thoughts. And so why is Jesus doing this? Why is He dumping this on them now? Well, we read back through the Gospel of John, if you took the time, and we would see that He speaks much of the love of God in that Gospel, the power of God to save, the mercy of God for sinners, the the truth of God, the life of God that He was bringing. Really, really wonderful things. But then as we reach chapter 14, there comes this darkening note of warning that He's been giving them. Terrible things are about to happen. Hardship, he tells them, is going to befall you. Suffering will invade your life. With my departure, people will hate you. Again, why is he telling them this? He's telling them this because with his coming departure, all these lessons they've learned, all of this that they have learned about him, his sovereignty, his grace, all of that must now be put into practice. And up to now, Jesus Himself has been there with them, holding their hands, walking them through everything. Not only that, but up to now, the hostility of the world has largely been focused on Him, on Christ. No one's trying to kill them. They're plotting to kill Jesus. But as soon as Jesus is gone, all that hostility and hatred will be turned on them. Again, verse 4, I didn't say these things to you at first because I was with you, but now I'm going away. And none of you is asking, where are you going? Now notice that. There's something here we need to see. What is the focus of the disciples right now? As they're hearing Jesus speak, what are they thinking about? Do you see it? Their minds are filled with thoughts of their own loss at this point. Jesus has just told them He's leaving, and yet none of them has said, okay, where are you going? Now, maybe that's because he'd asked, someone had asked the question before, back in chapter 13, 36, and Jesus had answered and going back to the Father, but it, but it does seem that maybe there's a little more going on here than just that. In fact, if you were to look back over the last couple of chapters, you would realize that the disciples themselves that now, at this point, have fallen completely silent. None of them has spoken a word since chapter 14, verse 22. And again, you might just think, well, they're listening intently, but Jesus exposes the deeper reason for their silence here, and that deeper reason is the grief that has begun to overwhelm them at the thought of His departure. That's what verse 6 means. He says, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're awash in it. 
You're swept up in it. You're, you're drowning in it. A sorrow has fallen upon them so deep that it's begun to blot everything else out of their minds. They can't think. They're not even processing what it is he is he's telling them. And the magnitude of that grief has done what grief does. It has turned them inward on themselves at this point. I mean, you been there? You ever been so overwhelmed with grief you can't think of anything else? I mean, that happens. Grief does that. But but here's the danger that comes when that begins to happen. That kind of grief can blot out the sun. And I mean the S-O-N sun. As your eyes begin to, to turn inward on yourself and your sense of loss and your sense of pain and you lose sight of Christ entirely, your ears grow dim to His voice because all you can see and hear is what is going on inside of here. The suffering. And that's what's begun to happen to them. He'd even warned them early on in John 14. He'd said, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Don't let this overwhelm you. Don't be afraid. But, but they are afraid. That they're fearful because of all the things that He's been saying to them. Now some of you know exactly what that feels like, don't you? And when that happens... When you begin to be overwhelmed with grief, fear, and other emotions, here's the danger. When that happens, it becomes very easy to let those feelings lead you into unbelief and a kind of a spiritual paralysis. I've seen it so many times. Now that's where they are. And so here Jesus is saying to them once again, Wake up, dear friends. Wake up. Stop looking inward. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop letting this overwhelm you. Stop letting your feelings lead you and turn your face back to Me. Dear one, listen. Your feelings make terrible leaders. Feelings will follow. You can't help that. You'll feel the things that you feel, but to to be led by your feelings, to to, to follow in the path that the feelings are pushing you is going to be a terrible, terrible direction because those feelings will push you down inside of yourself, especially grief, especially sorrow, especially anger, and you'll simply begin to wallow there when what you need to be doing is is being deflected back to look up and see Christ in His faithfulness. This, by the way, is why the world's constant advice that you follow your heart, that you follow your feelings, is such terrible device. advice. right? Don't listen to Disney when it says follow your heart. Because frankly, it's the last thing that you need. It's the last thing. Your feelings will mislead you. What you need is Christ. What you need is the assurance of His Word. What you need is trust in His promises. And that's what He's doing for them here. The heart that turns inward on itself and begins to follow its feelings is a heart that is being led into fear and doubt and grief and unbelief. But the heart that turns up in faith to Christ to see and remember His promises is a heart that's being led into grace and peace and joy and help. My best advice I can give you is look away from yourself and look to Christ. Look to Christ. That's the first thing He tells them this morning. Second, we see... Also, that when sorrows begin to overwhelm, second, we need to remember the great advantage we've now been given with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The great advantage. Look at verses 6 and 7. He continues. He says, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. There's the problem. Nevertheless, here's the solution. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go... 
the Helper will not come, but if I go, I'm going to send Him to you. Now listen, if Jesus, who is the truth incarnate, says to you, I tell you the truth, you really ought to listen to what He has to say. It's like all those times earlier that He's been saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, which means a truth drop is coming. Jesus is about to give some vital truth that you need to hear and take hold of. In verse 7, it comes, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Wait a minute, what? You know that's what they have to be thinking. Our advantage... In what possible world is having Jesus taking away from you better than having Him here with you? But that's what He says. And He backs it up with this, I'm telling you the truth. So what does He mean? First of all, look at that word advantage. Some of your translations will say it's better or it's best for you. But it's a word that, that pictures several things coming together to bring about something really good, something really advantageous, something beneficial. And so here's this, this tangle of events and happenings swirling around you. You can't see that they're leading anywhere, let alone anywhere good. You can't even imagine they're going to work out until suddenly, boom, they work out. And Jesus says, all this that I'm telling you, about my departure, about my leaving, about the coming persecution, all that you're going to have to go through, all this will come together to put you in a new advantageous situation, but you're going to have to trust me for it. In other words, something very good is about to come out of the very thing they're afraid of right now. And so often that is the case, isn't it? Okay, what is it? What is the better thing that he's talking about? What is, the, what is the advantage that's about to come? It is, of course, the promised help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come, he says, and take up residence in our lives in such a way that having Him come is better than having Jesus stay. Notice that again. It's better, Jesus says, to have the Holy Spirit present within us than to have Jesus standing physically beside us. Do you believe that? Or are you like the late R.C. Sproul says he was in his younger days? He said that for years he imagined how much better it would have been to have been alive in those days of Abraham as he was receiving instruction directly from God. Or even better, to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His physical voice. And he said, I imagine that the disciples had this great advantage over us because they were there. They saw Him. They, they heard Him. But then He said, when I understood these words, I began to realize that the advantage was not theirs. The advantage is ours because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And again, do you see that? More importantly, Christian, do you believe it? Jesus says it is better to be alive now after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost than it was to be alive then in the days of Christ's flesh. Why is that? Well, it's because of what the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. Because of who He is to us as He comes to dwell within us. Notice again. Notice again the name Jesus gives Him here. The Helper, the Paraclete, the Comforter. 
The Advocate. This is the fourth time Jesus has used this name for the Holy Spirit. So what is He to us? As we saw last week, this means the Holy Spirit as He comes to us to indwell us. He is our heavenly friend who comes to be within us. Indeed, to dwell within us as a help to us. As the one who makes Jesus daily real to us. As the one who comforts us and leads us and brings us the presence of Christ to strengthen us with power that we may continue to walk with Him. Think back to the first time we heard Jesus promise the help of the Holy Spirit. It's John 14, 16-20. If you want to look back there just a second. John 14, 16-20. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will send you another helper. There's that word. Uh, another, because Jesus was their helper, their paraclete, the one who was with them at the time. Now another has been promised. And He will be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, meaning through the Holy Spirit. Yet a little while the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me because I live, you also will live in that day. You will know that I am in the Father and you in Me and I in you. You will know, He says, you have a real experience and knowledge of this because the Spirit who now indwells you will make all this alive and real to you. He will assure you of my continuing presence and help. You will have everything you need from me because you will have it through Him. Do you understand? I mean, what a promise this is. We'll look more at next week. But the indwelling presence of the Spirit, he tells us, is better than the physical presence of Jesus... For at least two reasons. First, because of the reality of the Trinity. And in the reality of the Trinity, to have the Holy Spirit in you is to have Jesus with you in a new and better way. It is to have Him with you in a way that can never be taken away, never be eclipsed. You'll always have access to Him, especially in your time of need. Second, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, not only is it continual within us in those times of sorrow, we have Him, but also the presence of Jesus is now global. And by that I mean, He's not just standing in Jerusalem somewhere, so if we want to commune with Him, we've got to get on a plane and go see Him. Now He's here in Arnold, Missouri this morning. And in Scandinavia. And in Jordan when the Jacksons were there. And in Africa and Asia... Everywhere His needy children are found, there He is, not abandoning them as orphans, but drawing close to them through the ever-present Holy Spirit. It is better for us today to have the constant presence and power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit than it was to have Jesus Himself walking around on earth in the days of His flesh. So then there's the second thing then. Jesus tells them in order for the Holy Spirit to come in this way and be our help, Jesus Himself must go. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Why must Jesus leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come? 
Well, it's not because there's some mystical problem out there that keeps them from being in the same place at the same time. Something silly like that. Remember, <laughs> they've shared the presence of one another and the Father in the glorious joy of the Trinity from all eternity. But it comes down to this. The fact is that Jesus must first finish His work of redemption. Jesus must first die and rise, rise again and ascend to the Father's hand, uh, right hand where He now lives and reigns and intercedes for us. That must come first. Redemption must be won. And that is how Christ wins it. Dying, rising, ascending. He must finish that work first. Then the Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, Jesus says, He'll begin His work. So what is the work of the Spirit? Redemption applied. The Spirit takes the work Christ has finished on our behalf and He begins to apply it to us for our salvation. The Spirit takes what Christ has accomplished and applies it to this world of sinners to redeem a people for His glory and to help us keep walking in His grace faithful to the end. The Spirit's work. And that brings us into this this third thing this morning, this necessary aspect of the Spirit's work, and that is the Holy Spirit must bring conviction. We must rely on the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to bring people to Christ. Look at verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what will the Holy Spirit do when He comes? Jesus says He will convict the world. He will do this. Notice again, I'll just say this in passing. We'll look at it more next week. This is a He. This is a person. That we're not being told of a force unleashed, a power that flows. We're being told of a person who comes, the Comforter, the Helper. He will bring this conviction of sin, righteous, and judgment to bear. He'll make it real in the world, opening sin-blinded eyes, awakening self-centered hearts, bringing men and women to Christ. This is the great work that is needed. The Holy Spirit works conviction. And do you understand, this, this is the first thing that must necessarily be done for anyone to be saved. There must be the conviction of sin. One brother said, this statement shows that the first work of the Holy Spirit in any life is the work of conviction of sin. This word, this word convict in its origin has to do with exposing something, of, of bringing it to light, of causing it to be seen. Specifically here, speaking in the moral realm, it, it means to bring to light your guilt over something. Some, some wrong that you have done, some, some duty that you have neglected to, to wake you up so that you are convicted as it strikes your conscience. So this is more than just a matter of acknowledging that sin is, right? Oops, I messed up. Did a bad thing. With the Holy Spirit conviction, you begin to feel the weight of that sin. You begin to own its evil. You begin to be moved by that understanding to repent and to flee to Christ for the removal of that sin. Dear one, this is our great need. This is the Spirit's great work. This is what the world needs today more than anything else. It's what you need. So when the Spirit comes, Jesus says He will convict the world of three things, of sin, 
that it's real, that it's poison, that it's there, two, of righteousness and our need for righteousness that is found only in Christ, and three, concerning judgment, that it's coming and we can't avoid it unless we have a Savior from sin. Quickly, look at each of these. Three aspects of the Spirit's work of conviction. No, dear one, hear this please with your heart as well as with your mind. Hear this. First of all, the Spirit, when He comes, He brings conviction of sin. Verse 9 says, He convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Not just that there is such a thing as sin, but that's plain to see. You don't need the Spirit to to show you that sin has existence. I mean, look around the world around you. It's, It's plain as day for those who have eyes to see. Even if we refuse to call sin, sin, it is really clear, even to the blindest among us, that really bad things are done by people all over this world. No, but here we're speaking of something more personal than looking out and seeing sin in the world. Here we're talking about a personal conviction of the sinfulness of my sin. To look and to see that I indeed have sinned. I, I am the one who has done evil in God's sight. It is an awakening of the heart to the truth that sin exists not only out there, but it exists in me and the weight of that sin is pressing against me. As David confesses in Psalm 51. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And now how does David know that? Well, Because the Spirit has awakened his heart to it. The Spirit whom he mentions later in that same psalm has, has opened his eyes and he's come face to face with the sinfulness of his own sin. He doesn't dismiss it as a mistake. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say it, it's not that bad. He sees it as vile and worthy of condemnation. That's conviction. Not just a plain vanilla admission, yeah, I messed up, but doesn't everybody? No, no, this is a tasting personally of its bitterness. This is a seeing. Uh, My sin is an affront to God. Even even more, a denial of Christ. Notice that connection in verse 9. He convicts concerning sin. Why? Oh, because they do not believe in Me. Do you understand sin is personal? And in this case, it is against the very person of Christ Himself who died to rescue sinners from their sins. It's personal and yet perhaps... You sit here this morning oblivious to your own wickedness. Passing it off as something insignificant, a mistake perhaps, a slip up, but surely no big deal. No, 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 it is so much more than that. It is so much more. And until you see that and feel that and and begin to to understand the weight of that sin and how it's dragging you to, to, to judgment, You're not ready to run to Christ. You won't run to Him. So this is the understanding of sin's weight that the Spirit comes to bring to to see my sin as the very thing that sent Christ to the cross. To understand that and embrace it that God's own beloved Son died because of what I have done. That He was wounded for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity. Big deal? No big deal? Are you kidding Look what it did to Christ when He took my sins upon Himself. 
Yet the world refuses to see that. The world will not acknowledge, acknowledge that. The world ignores the horror and weight and the stench of its own sin and it cannot see it and it will not see it without the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, dear one, this is what we need. We need the Spirit to come and open blind eyes and awaken dead hearts to feel the weight and evil of sin. You need it personally. The world needs it broadly. Not just to feel that sin is bad in some general kind of way, but to see in my own heart that there's no escape. To understand Paul's words in Romans, none is righteous, no not one, and that means me. No one understands, no one seeks for God, including me. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one, for the wages of my sin is death. Or to hear Jesus' words in John 8, I told you that you will die in your sin. And unless you believe that I am He, that I am the Savior, you will die in your sin. The Spirit comes and His first work is to convict you of the sinfulness of your own sin. Second, the Spirit comes and along with that He gives the conviction to the world and to us that our need is righteousness we don't have. Verse 10, the Spirit comes to convict not only of sin, but also to convict of righteousness because, Jesus says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You see, it's not enough just to acknowledge that you have sinned. It's probably the weakness on a lot of gospel tracts I've seen. They say, admit that you have sinned. That's wonderful. But it's not just an admission that I've sinned. It's the feeling the weight of it, fleeing it. And where do I flee? I must then see the righteousness of Christ which I utterly and completely lack. I must understand that I must have what only Jesus the Savior can give. And so, so, so you must be moved to understand that you do not have what it takes to be accepted in God's presence. Your works, however good you may think they are, they're not and they're not enough. There's something that you need beyond that. There's something that you can never provide for yourself. And what is it? It's a life of spotless righteousness. And what does that mean? What is righteousness? Well, righteousness here means a spotless record in the eyes of God. A right standing before Him in which there is no blemish, no darkness. Now, the Pharisees, in their legalism, imagined they could attain such a right standing with God by their good works and by their religious devotion. They would, they, they, they would earn these things. People today, much the same, imagine if I'll just support the right cause, if I'll click the right like button, if I'll speak out on the right issue and be on the right side of history, I will prove to everyone around me that I'm a good person. I mean, that's what people think, whether they think it on the right or think it on the left. They think that my public declarations somehow set me in good. And that surely God, if He exists at all, God ought to be pleased with me for these good things that I have done. But you understand, either one of these is a complete failure to understand the righteousness that God requires. Which is what? What righteousness does God require? The righteousness God requires, read the Scriptures, you will see it very clearly. The righteousness God requires is perfect. 
It is spotless. It is blameless. It contains within it not a hint of selfishness or envy or malice or gossip or lust or impurity or greed or any of these things. Any one of these things thrown upon your righteousness would be a spot to blemish it forever. And let's be honest, you and I, we're filled of all of these things. That's why the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, looked at our righteousness and declared with the voice of God, all of us have become as one who is utterly unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, literally a a, a rotten minstrel cloth. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. We don't have the righteousness that God requires. Not one of us. I don't have it. You don't have it. Not in myself. Not in yourself. What can we do? Well, again, Jesus points the way concerning righteousness. Why? Because I go to the Father and you will see me. He means physically no more. The Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to see Jesus who is no longer present on earth, to see the Jesus we could otherwise never see and the righteousness we could otherwise never have. And when Jesus was here, think about it, when Jesus was here physically, that perfect righteousness of His was on display for anyone with physical eyes to see. His enemies even saw it. It's why they hated Him. But now to see Him, the Holy Spirit must open your spiritually blind eyes to see Him for who He is. You see, here's the problem. It's really easy to convince yourself you're pretty good if all you've got to do is compare yourself to the people around you. Right? Come stand next to me and you say, look, I'm a pretty good person. Or if if you don't think you can look that way next to me, which you can... Go, 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 go stand next to Kyle, or go stand next to your grandmother, go stand, you know, or, or if that doesn't work, go stand next to the prisoner who just got out of prison, or the drug addict. You can find someone that compared to them, you look okay. Have you ever had this happen? You had a white shirt on, and you thought it was really, really bright white, so you stood by something that was white, and suddenly you saw how yellow and ugly and dingy it had become. We need to be able to see Christ. When he was alive, people saw and hated his perfect righteousness. But now the Holy Spirit comes. Not only does He show us the dinginess of our sin, but we see it in light of the blinding purity of Christ, which exposes the grimy filth that we are covered with and gives the lie to any claim of goodness we may have. And when we begin to see His righteousness and our sinfulness, we despair to find any goodness in us and we turn and find the goodness, the righteousness, the perfection we don't have but need in Christ Himself. Paul speaks of that in Philippians 3.9. He says we must be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes as a gift from God and depends on faith. And so the Spirit convicts us of our sin and its wickedness. He makes us to feel our need for Christ and His righteousness. And then third, the Spirit comes to convict the world judgment. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Of course, judgment is the one thing the world doesn't want to believe in. Doesn't want to believe that judgment is coming. 
Hey, let's be honest. You don't want to believe judgment is coming. Nobody does. Not in their right mind. And we're all great liars. We lie to ourselves to convince ourselves that no disaster of this magnitude will ever touch us. There's no hell to fear. Surely not. Until the Spirit opens our eyes to see that hell itself is the just punishment of a holy God against all who wickedly defy Him and that that just punishment is what will fall on me. How do we know that? Well, first, because the Word says it very clearly. But even if we're denying that Word, how do we know it? Because Jesus Himself tells us this judgment which we ought to fear in light of our sinfulness and His righteousness, this judgment has already fallen and is standing against the ruler of this world, Satan. See that again in verse 11 concerning judgment. Why? Because the ruler of this world, Satan himself, is judged. I don't have time to go into the power of those words, but the words used here means stands judged now and forever. It's a perfect meaning He stands under this. And why are we told this? So that we'll look and see this is where rebellion against God leads. I hope you understand that Satan does not rule hell. Satan is not the ruler of hell now, nor will he ever be the ruler of hell. Satan, by God's decree, is a condemned prisoner who will suffer there eternally. He might be the biggest and baddest of all those prisoners, but that is exactly what he is. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's why Luther said his doom is sure. It's written in stone. And all he can do in this present time is to seek to take as many down with him as possible. You do understand, don't you, that that's what he's up to. Satan, the defeated enemy of God, who stands judged already and knows judgment is coming better than you do. You deny it. He affirms it. He knows it's coming. Is clawing and grasping and deceiving and lying to do everything He can in order to drag others with Him. And this is what Christ came to redeem us from. This is what the Holy Spirit seeks to awaken us to. And dear friend, this is God's mercy. This is what the Gospel brings when it's preached in the power of the Spirit. No, 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 it's true. We can't, just, we can't convince any one of these things. I can't convince myself on my bad days. But the Holy Spirit comes with heavenly power to open blind eyes and awaken dead hearts to see and to feel the weight of sin, to long for the gift of Christ's righteousness and so to flee the coming judgment into the arms of the Savior by faith. So let me close with this. When Peter preached the Gospel for the first time in the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, do you remember what happened? That vast crowd that had gathered which had been blind, deaf, and ignorant of Christ, refusing to believe, is suddenly, by the power of the Spirit, bringing conviction, thrown upon His knees. Acts 2.37 says they were cut to the heart. They cry out to Peter and the apostles, What must we do? 
Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, this, 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 this conviction leading to repentance and life through Jesus. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized and 3,000 were added to the church that day. Oh, dear one, this is what we need today. Not more human cleverness, not more slick presentations, but more of the Holy Spirit's conviction through the simple preaching by faith of the Gospel. Dear one, it's, it's what you need personally. If you've never come to Christ, if you've never come to Christ, you need to see and feel the weight of your sin. You need to understand the righteousness of Christ, which is your only hope. The judgment that is coming so that you turn by grace and flee to Christ and lay hold of Him. And I'm not saying you must wait to feel something, but I'm saying as soon as you see Him and see you and understand that He's your only hope, believe the Gospel. By faith, trust in Him. That's what you need. And church, it's also what we need. We need a greater trust in the Spirit's power to bring conviction of sin through our witness and the faithful presentation of the Gospel. I say that because it's really easy to look around in this world right now with its runaway sin and defiant rebellion and to begin to think nothing can be done. And frankly, if it really did depend upon us, nothing could be done. But hear me, it doesn't depend upon us. We are not left on our own. The Spirit owns the Word and He is more than up to the task. And what we must do is put our whole trust in Him, not ourselves. So much of evangelicalism is drunk with its own techniques which are powerless to do anything. And we must be confident in the work of the Spirit. And So what would it look like for a church like ours to truly believe in the sovereign power of the Spirit to bring conviction? Just think about that. How would that change our witness? How would that fill our prayer meetings with, with, with urgent requests that the Spirit would come and do His work? How would that embolden us to stand for Him no matter what the world is doing because we trust Him to use our witness even as we're under fire? Dear church, let's believe these truths and surrender to the Spirit to do the work only He can do, but He will do as we trust Him. And so Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we are confronted by our need and by Your goodness, by our sin and by Your righteousness, by our helplessness and Your help that is all-powerful in the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see, Lord. Open our mouths to speak. Open our hearts to believe. Christ died for sins, was raised on the third day, sits at the Father's right hand, and has sent the Spirit to be our help to do His work in and through us as we continue to trust in Him. God, drive it into our hearts that we may be bold 
and confident for the sake of Christ. Amen.